Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather around your word and your sacrament. I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds by, uh, by your word today and that we would see, that we would come today and see uh, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And uh, pray, Lord, that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of the hearts gathered here would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So like I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be talking about fish. But that's not the point of the sermon. Just a brief analogy here. So I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, and we didn't eat a whole lot of seafood. What seafood we did eat was deep fat fried. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Bluegill, perch, catfish, we put in a deep fat fryer. That was my experience with fish, or maybe fish sticks at school, in grade school. We had that kind of fish. Fish was just not on the menu a whole lot growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska. We were more of a beef, pork, and chicken kind of family. Then in college, I started dating this girl who grew up in the Pacific Northwest. And she opened my mind to all sorts of different delicacies, seafood being one of them. She told me about this thing called sushi. I had never really heard of it before. But apparently, what she told me is that it was raw fish. I thought, that sounds disgusting. That sounds awful. No, I'm not going to eat any raw fish. And she's like, no, you just got to try it. And I'm like, what if, I'm gonna get, what if I get food poisoning from this raw fish? Are you sure it's safety? People actually eat raw, uncooked fish? This is crazy. Well, she wanted me to take her to a sushi restaurant for uh, a date night. I obliged. I'm usually pretty open to new things, you know, and learning new things. So we went, and you would never guess it, but I actually enjoyed it. I like sushi. It was great. Now it's like one of my favorite things to do, like go get sushi. Yeah. I don't know if you all knew that about me, but I love sushi. Really tasty stuff. And it's all because my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, invited me to come and see, come and taste it. You never know what kind of wonders are behind that mystery doors. I'm sure many of us can think of a time where someone invited us to try something new and we were blown away by how amazing it was. Learning and experiencing new things can be scary at times, but it seems like all of us are wired to be more skeptical and hesitant to try something new or to adopt a new way of thinking. It's hard to change. It's hard to try something new. It's, a, it's not really hardwired into us. So today we are going to be looking at Jesus' invitation to discipleship. He invites a couple of men to come and see what he was up to. And it appears that these two were not reluctant at all to follow Jesus and see what he was all about. Others in the gospel are a lot more hesitant than these two disciples. But we'll see what all that means for us as we follow Jesus today and try to invite others to do so as well. So John the Baptist, he sets the scene there in the Gospel of John, uh, proclaiming a, a baptism of repentance and bringing people, turning them back to the Lord. And he was not a normal guy, John the Baptist. He was a weirdo. He wore camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. He lived out in the wilderness. He was kind of a, a weird dude. He did not really conform to the social norms. And the message he was preaching was not all that positive and encouraging. It probably wouldn't make Caleb nowadays. But John, nonetheless, had a pretty good following. A lot of people came out to hear what he had to say. He had quite a few disciples, and he was preparing them for something amazing that God was about to do. In verse 29, John lets them in on what was going on. 
John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is amazing news. This is an amazing exclamation. This was a bold assertion on John the Baptist's part. In the Gospel of John, we get a lot of these revelatory type statements. The disciples show tremendous faith right from the beginning in these statements. John's Gospel is the only one that refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God also. Now, if you were a first century Jew and you heard John say this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what do you think would come to your mind? This is time for participation. I want you to think about this. If you heard John the Baptist, your first century Jew, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what would come to your mind? Sacrifice, yeah, sacrificial system, right, where you bring lambs and other animals and grain to sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, what else? I'm thinking of... uh, The prophecies of a sacrifice, a greater sacrifice, could be. I'm thinking of one in the book of Exodus that's pretty significant, Exodus chapter 12. Do you remember, uh, let my people go, that's your hint. Yeah, Moses and the whole Exodus and the Passover lamb, right? The lamb, you sacrificed the lamb, ate the meal, put the blood over the doorpost, and the angel of the Lord would pass over. Um, yeah, a lot of these pro- thoughts probably were coming into these people's minds, these first century Jews, when, when they hear John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another uh, reference might be Leviticus chapter 16, where you get the reference to the scapegoat. Um, the people of Israel, the elders, put their hands on the scapegoat and really confessed the sins of the people and sent the goat out into the wilderness. And that was to take away the sin of God's people. One thing they could have been thinking about was, was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. This is, was a festival held once a year for the Jews where sacrifices were made to cover over the sins of God's people. But one crucial difference between Yom, Yom Kippur and the Passover And what John the Baptist was saying in his exclamation is that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, would not just cover over the sins of God's people, but what? He would take away the sin of God's people. It's a difference there. Not just cover up. Cover over. So you have to keep on coming back every year for Yom Kippur to, you know, cover over the sins. But no, Jesus comes once and for all and takes away the sin of the world. John is getting people ready for Jesus to come. He is pointing people toward Jesus. And a couple of chapters later, John's disciples would bring up to him the fact that a lot of his disciples were leaving him and joining Jesus. And most pastors and preachers would be pretty upset by this. They're losing their sheep. Hey, that other pastor is stealing my sheep, but not John. John doesn't say that. John said in chapter 3, verse 29, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, for this joy of mine is now complete. And we know that John, there in chapter 3, he's talking about Christ and his church. Jesus is the bridegroom. The bride is his church. 
John is just the friend of the bridegroom, but the bride, the church, belongs to the bridegroom, Jesus. And this is a great reminder for all of us people, uh, church people, and all of us pastors out there in our church here. The gate is not my church. The gate is not your church. But the gate is Jesus' church. He is Lord of it. It is his. He owns it. And it's every other Christian church on earth is his as well. He owns it. Jesus is the bridegroom. Friends of the bridegroom, they come and they go, but Jesus is always there guiding his church. John continues in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. How beautiful are those words? He must increase, but I must decrease. May that be our creed every day, day in and day out. God, more of you. May other people see more of you in me and less of me, my old sinful, selfish person. John showed tremendous humility. John was getting out of the way so that people might encounter Christ himself. I hope and pray that you all here at the gate take my departure as an opportunity to set your eyes on Jesus, to focus on Jesus, to pray to Jesus, to look to Jesus for your direction, for the next steps of where he wants his church to go here in Ankeny. That is my hope and my prayer for you all here at the gate. And may we all show John the Baptist's attitude of getting our ego and our selfishness out of the way so others can experience Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. In verse 35, John is walking with a couple of his disciples the next day and again points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. It's as if he were saying, Hey guys, stop following me. This is the guy you ought to be following. Look to him. Listen to him. And that's exactly what these two disciples do. One of them we find out is Andrew and the other one is not mentioned, but we assume that it is the author, John, who never mentions his own name in the gospel, which is an interesting uh, fact for the gospel of John. And there they go. They follow Jesus. And Jesus sees these two men who are following him, and he asks them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? And what a silly question to ask, right? These two disciples of John have been following him around, probably did the baptism of repentance thing, heard John call Jesus the Son of God and the Lamb of God and said the Spirit has anointed this man. Isn't it obvious what they're seeking? Jesus, what are you thinking here? Why are you asking this question? They are seeking the Messiah, these two disciples. They're looking for the Christ, the anointed one, who would come redeem Israel and establish the kingdom of God on earth. Of course, this is why they're followed. This is what they're looking for. Someone to come and vanquish their foes and deliver them from oppression. Or maybe Jesus' question was just honest and penetrating. What are you two really seeking? What are your motives for following me? Are you hoping that by following me you will receive power, glory, wealth, fame, respect, or perhaps wisdom? Maybe this is a good question for all of us to ask ourselves, day in and day out. What are you seeking? Where is your heart? Do you desire the things of God or do you desire the things of man? Where are you putting your time, your energy, your efforts, your focus, 
your energy? What are you seeking to accomplish in life? What are you aiming at? What are you shooting for? What are you seeking? Well, the disciples respond to Jesus and say, Rabbi, where are you staying? That's interesting, right? The way this narrative goes. Well, we just want to know where you're hanging out, you know, where you're staying, where you're at, where you're at you know, where you're abiding. What an odd thing to do, to respond to Jesus' question with another question. Did they really want to know where he was staying? I don't think they really knew what they were asking. Because this word stay in Greek is meno, and it's a big theme in the Gospel of, God, uh, of John. Uh, but it can mean to stay or to abide or to remain. And this verb uh, is continually used in, in John. He uses it in chapter 6, verse 53, in the Bread of Life Discourse. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Jesus explains to his disciple that he is the vine, and they are the branches in John chapter 15. And whoever abides in him bears much fruit. Whoever abides in the vine, whoever stays with Jesus Jesus explained to his disciples in chapter 15 that uh, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from abiding and staying in me, you can actually do nothing. So these disciples had no idea at this point what staying or abiding with Jesus would really entail. And Jesus responds to their question with a simple invitation. Come and you'll see. Just come and you will see. Jesus invites these two disciples to come and abide with him, to stay with him, to follow him. And I think so many people nowadays are afraid to make the commitment to being a profession, professing Christian. Christianity is so misrepresented in the, in the media, and people hear about all the woes associated with churches and with clergy. And who can blame these people? Who would want to be associated with all that bad press out there? And besides that, there's so much hostility and finger-pointing in our world today, it's dangerous to stand up for just about anything for fear of being publicly shamed and ridiculed on social media or elsewhere. You know, like me personally, I try not to post anything that could possibly mis be misconstrued or misunderstood. Like, I try to avoid anything that could possibly be twisted because um, I'm a public figure. Everything I write on there, people are watching, reading, making judgments. It's like we're constantly walking on eggshells, all of us. And it's led a lot of us to just remove, step back. Just like, ah, just keep myself in my own little world here as long as I don't hurt anybody else, you know. But if I stand up and say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that might offend some people. But that is biblical Christianity. And it is quite offensive. Jesus doesn't let you be neutral, right? He does not let you be neutral. He says that he is the only way to eternal life. He says, whoever is with me, whoever isn't with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me, whoever doesn't stay and abide with me, he's against me. And do you know who's against Jesus? Satan, the evil one. There's like two teams, Jesus team, Satan team. There's no middle ground. That's biblical Christianity. That's offensive to our world today. Just not really popular, but that's what biblical Christianity is. So I believe Jesus' invitation to discipleship with these words, come and see, are twofold. Number one, 
Discipleship is a journey. It's an adventure in which the disciple entrusts the course of the journey to the master. And this is just a tricky thing. Like, who's got the power to actually follow Jesus or come to Jesus? You know, we know that we cannot, by our own reason or strength, come to Jesus, but the Holy Spirit enlightens us. So that come, it's like a leap of faith, the letting go of our own control and letting God reign in our life. That's this first part of the adventure. So it's a leap of faith. Number two, discipleship offers the opportunity for firsthand experience. That's the come and the see part, to come and see and experience what God has in store for you, to learn for yourself. It's like my wife. Uh, she can tell me how awesome sushi is, but I'm not really going to know until I go and taste sushi. That's what Jesus is inviting you to. Come, spend some time with me. You're not going to really know how great the kingdom of God is until you come and see and experience it. Enjoy the fellowship of the Christian church. You're not going to know what it's like until you actually dip your toes in the water. Life in the kingdom of God doesn't make sense to those standing on the outside until they finally let their guard down, put the skepticism, fears, and concerns aside, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, put their faith in the master of this journey. In John, seeing is a means of seeing through faith. The eyes of faith, seeing. John plays on these words a lot. So the invitation to follow Jesus is to come and follow Jesus with the eyes of faith and see who he really is. The risk of the journey, the come part, is a prerequisite for the seeing part. You've got to come if you're going to see anything. Some people are afraid to come to church because they're not sure they really believe. I've heard this before. You might have heard it as well. I'm just struggling in faith, and I don't know if I, I'm welcome in, in God's church if I'm really not sure about God and his goodness and if he really exists. Well, not coming to church and hearing the word of God is not going to help your faith development. I'll tell you that right now. In John chapter 15, when Jesus is talking about being the vine and the branches, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So unless you put yourself under the word of God, you're not going to understand. You're not going to believe. So we need to put ourselves under the word of God in order to help our faith grow. We cannot go it alone. We need the communion of saints. We need the forgiveness of sins that are found here where God's people gather. So if you have a friend who's struggling with faith, I encourage you to explain that God strengthens the faith of his people through gathering around his word and his sacraments. So just invite them. Come. Come and see. Come and see. You can't control whether they take you up on it or not, but you can't control the invitation. Faith is a funny thing. You see, you, you believe in the things that you spend a lot of time doing, thinking about, meditating on, focusing on, aiming at. The more time, money, attention, and effort you spend on a thing, the more you value and believe in that thing as important and true. So my prayer for you today is that you continue to come and see Jesus, that you would fix your eyes on the master and leader of this journey through life in the kingdom of God. I encourage you to continue coming to worship, to be reminded of this Lamb of God who not just covered up your sin, but he has taken your sin away by the blood of his cross. That is what Jesus has done for you. But not only come and see, but I invite you to go and tell others about Christ and what he has done for us. So I want, you to, encourage, I want to encourage you today to follow the disciple Andrew's example and invite others to come and see what Jesus is all about. That's how the story goes. 
Andrew goes and hangs out with Jesus for like a minute and he's like, hey, Peter, bro, we found the Messiah. He's here. The Christ, the Messiah is here. You should come, you should come and see this. And Peter takes Andrew up on the invitation and Peter becomes one of the foremost leaders of the New Testament church. You never know what God is going to do with your invitation. Never know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we can confess with confidence that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you, Father, for that Spirit-filled enlightenment. And we pray for those in our family, those of our, our friends and our neighbors and coworkers and classmates, Lord, who don't call on your name. We pray that you would turn their hearts to you. Pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit into them, that they would cry out to you, call you Abba, Father. And also, Father, pray a blessing as we go from this place that you would help us to be um, light in a dark place, to be your hands and feet here in the world that desperately needs your love and care. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.